The celebration of the 30th anniversary of my historic spaceflight continues back here on Earth with this podcast series, Sharing Space with Dr. Roberta Bonder. Now, this is an opportunity for you to join me while I explore life, creativity, flexibility, and change with my guests, some of the most famous and globally well-respected Canadians. In each of these podcasts, we will hear a special guest express personal views about the present and the future. And if you have a deep passion for exploration and inquiry, whether it's through the arts, sciences, or athletics, for example, the storytelling in this series is for those who wander and those who wonder. Join me now to explore how some of the most notable Canadians exercise their creativity and curiosity in a wide array of fields. Unlike those of the night sky, these stars are within reach. So let's tap into their energy as they enlighten us. Today we welcome Dr. David Saint-Jacques, engineer, astrophysicist, and a family physician with expertise in delivering remote medical care. He is best known for his role as a Canadian astronaut aboard the International Space Station, the ISS, for his 204-day mission, Expeditions 58 and 59, between December 2018 and June 2019, the longest space mission by a Canadian to date. After launching on a Soyuz rocket to the ISS, he performed experiments in many fields of science, a spacewalk, and even captured a visiting spacecraft with a Canadian robotic arm. I am thrilled that he immersed himself in the Bonder Foundation's Migratory Bird Project by capturing images of several avian corridors from the ISS. He was appointed Officer of the National Order of Quebec. The challenges of COVID moved Dr. Saint-Jacques to aid his medical profession with his hands-on support in frontline hospital care, even as he continues with the Canadian Space Agency. Let's begin. When you were in space, I'm sure that looking at the Earth, well, because it's different, it's a different vantage point, that there was something that, that you may have felt that you could describe or could think about that you might be able to share with us? Yes, Roberta, certainly. I mean, you've seen it uh, yourself, and I'm sure you'll understand. The, there's something endearing about the beauty and fragility of the Earth, but I, what really struck me as I saw these, you know, we're all used to these views. We, we know that abstractly. But when you see the Earth floating in the completely dead vacuum of space, I, I found that I, I kind of understood something about the human condition, that how exposed we are in this otherwise unforgiving environment. I mean, space is just dark and black and full of radiations. Other celestial bodies, like the moon, is just a dead rock. The sun is a ball of fire. Other planets are hopelessly inhospitable. And the earth is just this incredible oasis. It's breathing. She's alive. She's glowing blue. It's, it's just the contrast with its environment is incredible. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, you put it so eloquently. It, the, you're right. The sobering, the sobering nature of looking beyond the planet and then feasting your eyes on this warmth, incredibly living, it's almost like a living, breathing light that comes back mm-hmm. to rise. It's, it, is, it is quite incredible. The, the Earth is it's our only home in the cosmos. And it's not like we have an option. We just have to, take, to be good shepherds and take good care of her. So there was this sense of a, this just very endearing fragility and, and sense of exposure uh, that was it's kind of a shivering. It was kind of not scary, but you know, it's very sobering. 
to, 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 to see that. Like there's, there's nowhere else to go. And I thought of, I, I thought of humanity as a, you know, as a mountain climber on, on a, you know, climbing a, this ice wall with just one rope of safety. I don't mess with your rope. <laughs> That's your <laughs> rope. <laughs> I must say that sometimes when people see something, a Star Trek movie, there was one uh, that uh, it showed uh, they're bringing a whale back from space because they're bringing mm -hmm. it back through time and they're going to repopulate. I keep telling people there's no whale up there that we're bringing back. I mean, sure, there's sunlight and stuff coming in with, I don't know, fragments of stuff that's floating around, but there's there's no whale. No. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, it, it kind of high, highlighted, enhanced my, the sense of responsibility, I think, that we should all have within you know our purview to... Uh, to be good shepherds and do it, you know, try to at least avoid doing damage uh, to this, just, just this miracle. It's just this miraculous yeah. oasis in the middle of absolutely nowhere. It is a, wow, it's beautiful, but it's, it is kind of, uh, it was awe-inspiring uh, to see it. So that was the main, the dominating uh, feeling. Um, and then of course, um, a sense of wonder uh, at, you know, the, the richness of biodiversity on our planet, how, how come there's life and how incredibly complex it is and varied and resilient. Uh, it was just, you know, I'd, whenever I had a, a second, I would go to the window and, 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 and watch, look at the earth because it was like a miracle. And then, you know, what's funny now, I'm here in my office and I look outside the window and it's the same planet I'm looking at, right? It's the same Earth. Yes. It's just yes. another perspective. So I try to keep that little bit of, uh, of, of wonder. Uh, I think I brought back some wonder uh, from space. Now, what about, what about uh, when you were doing your EVA or your spacewalk? How, how did you manage with that? I mean, you know, it had to take pictures and you saw the Earth again. And could you tell it us was, a little? It was interesting, yeah, because I had the... By the time, just by the virtue of scheduling, by the time I, I did a, an EVA, I had already been in space station for over three months. So I was very used to microgravity environment, the view of the earth, you know, looking at it from the cupola. Uh, but I, I wonder, everybody tells me it's different when you're outside. I just couldn't imagine why is it so different? You know, I would practice floating in the cupola, not touching anything with my eyes next to the window. <laughs> and then I said, maybe that's what it's going to be like. And then when I, when I finally got a chance to go out, you get very busy. So it was just very busy. And every year so often, you know, I glance back at the earth. And then I got very lucky because at some point, uh, I had a, a piece of hardware to install somewhere and it didn't fit. So I made this call to mission control. Oh, sorry, uh, Houston, I just don't think this is going to fit. And then a few questions back and forth. And then here come this call, you know, okay, uh, stand by. And of course, that's a gift when you're on a spacewalk. <laughs> and so I had like 10, 15 minutes to myself. At least that's what it felt like. Just looking at the earth, it was during the day. And, uh, um, and I had this vision as I was hearing mission control. All you hear is one voice of someone, a friend of yours in mission control and the, another friend of yours outside. So I had Jeanette and Anne, the only two human beings around. Uh, and I felt this great, kind of kinship with humanity funnily enough i thought look at the planet oh how big is a human wow a human is tiny i can't even see them right uh, at this yeah. from this scale but i felt 
the presence, if you want, the collective presence of thousands of people over decades who had scratched their heads, sweat their brains to invent this space station, this space suit, make this possible for me to just be there gallantly floating around in space looking at the earth. And I felt these people, you know, they'll never, they've never been here. They just, it's all the, through their imagination. So I felt like it was this little representative of human imagination, of the incredible reach of the human mind. So I didn't feel like I was a tiny little satellite of the earth. I felt like I was big. I was part of something huge, the human, the reach of the human mind. And, you know, as on one hand, you look at the earth and it's sobering, how fragile it is and how big the problems are that we're facing, be them ecological, political, social, medical these days. At the same time, I was reassured, wow, we can do this. There's just no limit to the power of the human imagination, international teamwork, when we decide to put our differences aside and, and work towards a common goal. Look at this, it's incredible. We are keeping human beings in a completely alien environment, able to look, down, look upon at ourselves. So uh, I really felt like a connection to, uh, just a connection to home, very strong connection to home, isn't it? funny eh? it's like when you travel the further away you travel the the stronger your bond with your own country is kind of this i had to leave earth to really feel like an earthling finally yeah it's uh it's a way good way of of, of speaking about it. it the detachment of the planet it's amazing sometimes how much then you look forward to things after so you want to bond more closely with something and i remember when i came back it was it was bird song. It was uh, sounds of water. Mm -hmm. It was the things that that I missed that I knew were on the planet, but it was so silent. <laughs> Just looking at it and thinking, there's a lot of stuff down there. And I think about human behaviors and how much more we can be doing with our creativity and our imagination, the the kinds of things. But sometimes, I know the way we treat each other, certainly politically uh, and personally. Sometimes when I see these news stories come in. It's, it's a bit it's a bit disconcerting, but then you see a good news story, and I I feel like you know right away I, well hey you're not we're not an all bad species here, but certainly human behavior when we're in space and you think about what's going on on the planet, I think there's no need for bad stuff. We should all get together and 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 solve mm -hmm. some of these greater problems. Yeah, for sure. On the other hand, it is understandable. These are all struggles and problems that that. They come from limited resources, you know, and from uh, and from not knowing each other that well, just the vast distances on the human scale. I think, uh, mm -hmm. but we can solve we can solve all this. I'm, I drew, I really came back from space with, on one hand, a very sobering um, understanding of the magnitude of the challenges, and on the yeah. other hand, uh, just a great optimism as a father, as a citizen. Uh, we can do this. We we can do this. We can we can fix all of these problems. We just gotta just gotta kind of put our minds to it. And as a, as, I don't know, it's one of my professional source of pride to be part of this great endeavor that demonstrates practically on a daily basis that we can work together in space. Countries like the U.S., Russia, Germany, Japan, Canada that not so long ago were at war with each other work together in space to do incredible things uh and uh i've been doing doing so for decades i just uh you know it gives me it gives me hope it really really gives me hope it's not easy but it's like a concrete demonstration that we can do it of course we do it every day 
And you were speaking about being a father. Could you just uh, help us uh, in terms of understanding the importance of photography to your life, uh, before flight and in flight and and now, uh, in terms of having it as a tool for communicating things and and, and sharing? Yeah, my my relationship with photography started uh, as a teenager. Uh, it was more for art. I had a even had a you know a black room in my house at some point where I developed my own uh, black and white film, and uh, I like to take photos of nature, buildings, architecture. And then I don't know. At some point, I realized uh, I really care more about people than about objects. And there are books full of really really nice photos of mountains and buildings taken by professionals. So for decades. I just took photos of my friends <laughs> again, yeah. Uh, and then, and then I became a father. And then, of course, like all parents, then all I take is kid, photos of my kids. <laughs> I have tens <laughs> of thousands of them, of, of movies and photos. Uh, but so going back to space, um, going to space was like a circling back to this just interest in the aesthetics of photos. We get quite a lot of training at the Johnson Space Center before space flight because it's a uh, you know, there's scientific experiments we do on board and there's on the spacewalk using Canada and all that. But taking good photos is a big thing that we bring back to Earth as these nice photos of the planet. And I, I always wanted the photos to be useful and see something interesting, but also to be beautiful. The framing, the lighting, have a bit of the curve of the Earth, a little bit of the atmosphere to, so that it doesn't look like a Google Earth photo. It looks like a photo yes. taken from a spacecraft. Uh, and so I was, uh, and it's an art that's handed over from crew member to crew member. It's one of the things that the senior crew on board space station hands you down, these tricks, because we have all pretty high quality photographic equipment. But as you know, the better the equipment, the more manual it is. <laughs> you don't want to yeah. rely on the, on yeah. the automated settings, so you got to know what you're doing. And it's, you're moving around the earth, it's moving fast. It's like taking photos of a bird, I suppose. Uh, there's only one shot. Now, next time you go over this ground site, in the same day, light conditions is in several months. Uh, so uh, yeah, it was a bit of an art. Too. There's a learning curve there, and it was particularly interesting uh, with the you know, all the photos that, that I had to take for your project. Uh, very well described, and you know, you like the, the way it happens. You, sh- you know, it's going to happen at this time. You show up to the cupola, and then you have a you have a picture of the spot from far away, and then a few photos from nearer and nearer. So. You can see it coming on the horizon as the spacecraft flies over the earth. Oh, yes, it's that lake. It's that mountain. Okay, it's going to be to the left of this. You adjust your camera. You zoom in. Okay, I had the spot. Then you wait for the perfect alignment. Take your photos. It's okay. I hope the exposure was okay. I hope everything was okay because that was the last time for a couple of months. Yeah, Yeah, no, it was great. In fact, the ones that were taken because you went your flight spanned seasons. It wasn't mm-hmm. it wasn't just one season. So that really helped us to create a story about migration and the fact that well there's no food because there's snow on the ground and we can talk about mm-hmm. the ecosystems that 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 sleep a little bit and the timing of of the migration of the birds coming back. No, all of that I I when I looked at a, a photograph of the cupola and all the lenses and the cameras and you you had a beautiful phrase that you used on the on the conference call that we had from space and that was you had a quiver uh, that you were pulling things mm-hmm. I just, it was a marvelous a marvelous uh, expression I guess maybe because I used to coach university archery and I kind of, ah. kind of think about a quiver and having all these lovely lovely arrows in and picking the right one at the right time for the right reason so as a as a sailor a quiver for me is a set of sails yeah. oh wow there you go <laughs> 
I like that. I guess that's why we need a glossary at the end of all of this. Uh, I won't get into some sidebars of some dual, dual interesting words. Uh, well, maybe I will. When I was at Guelph, AI meant artificial insemination. We got in the space program was artificial intelligence. <laughs> oh, dear. Okay. Um, let's see. When you were, before you flew in space, birds were obviously there and you could hear them and you could see them. And then in space, you couldn't see them and you couldn't hear them, but you're photographing where they are. Then after space flight, I assume that you're probably waiting for spring to see birds again, I'm unless you're fortunate to see a snowy owl or some gull <laughs> somewhere. But uh, can you tell us a little bit about about your affection for birds and maybe why they're important to you? Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, any wild, I love, I love all wild animals and having young children, I think, reminds you of their importance because of course kids just love animals and i think they naturally see uh that we are on a level with them you know that we both yeah. belong to the planet and we both live there um and uh actually during the beginning of the pandemic my 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 seven-year-old son told me you know that it's animals don't seem to care about the pandemic <laughs> they seem to they they, they yeah. seem to be okay with the planet thank god you know yeah you're right you're right they go about their own stuff and uh, they they really live there and birds in particular i just find them very gracious uh, i find them um and because they fly you know maybe that's something that i really secretly not secretly i openly envy their ability to fly have we not all dreamt of that uh, as children uh, um and uh, this, the return of the spring right now is we're in the depth of winter in Montreal. Uh, you know, I can't, can't wait to hear birds and see them come back. There's a, um, going back to my, my life in the Arctic, you know, we would during the, uh, during the summer, we would see all these southern birds, you know, who would uh, be coming to the Arctic uh, um, to, uh, to, to nest, uh, uh, giant swans from Florida, for example. There's uh, one species that we're following that you may you may have seen in the Arctic. It's, they kind of, they're in flocks when they're down south, but they get sort of separated up with their little families and nests, especially on Southampton Island. But it's the red knot, uh, Rufus subspecies mm -hmm. that we're following. And they're, they're such an incredible bird. We we photographed them down in the southern part of the east of the east coast of the United States in the winter, and they had this grayish this plumage that you'd never even look at them twice. And then they go up to mm. Delaware and feast on these the horseshoe crab eggs, and they become red. And then they fly up to Mangan <laughs> National Park, and they and then from there they fly up to uh, Southampton Island in the in the Arctic and set their little nests. I mean, it's just. They're incredible creatures, um, and we're just very, we're very pleased to be able to follow some of them and to have people like you that has really, you have had a life, lifelong connection with with the natural world and the environment through your adventures, through your work, through, and through your family now that you're trying to create new things for them to do and to get exposed to in the out of doors. I know. I think as a ch every child, the first time you understand the the scope of bird migration, the the distances that they travel, we mm -hmm. like to say instinctively, but I mean, in some way, they figure it out. They just have a different brain than ours. Uh, it is. It's this. Some. It's very humbling. It's very humbling uh, how uh, really the world is their oyster, and how for them, uh, you know, the their relationship with the land. 
it must be uh, completely different uh, from ours because uh, we're kind of ground-based uh, animals. Um, there's a, uh, you know, and we had to invent the airplane to, to suddenly see our planet uh, differently. Otherwise, we're stuck to what you can see from the side of a road. Uh, and so when I had the chance to work as a family physician in the Arctic, and nature is beautiful there, of course. And the, uh, I remember an, an, an Inuit elder explaining to me that the, you know, the earth doesn't belong to us. It's the other way around. We, we belong to the earth. And, you know, you can have that wisdom as an Inuit elder, and it's completely reinforced when you go to space. You realize, well, all we do here is like through incredible efforts of engineering, recreate the earth and a little bubble of the earth environment. So we, that's the only way we can go to space, by going in a little bubble of Earth-like environment with the same air, the same temperatures, everything. So we don't exist outside the Earth. Parfait, David. That was just wonderful. Well, listen, uh, all the best to you and to your family. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. It really is a privilege to engage with other minds and experiences. I would like to thank Dr. David Saint-Jacques for sharing his unique adventure with us today. Come back again in two weeks for the next Sharing Space with Dr. Roberta Bonder podcast, when my guest will be singer-songwriter Buffy St. Marie. Thanks for joining me.